Hello, my name is David Lesner, and I'm one of the pastors at Creekwood United Methodist Church. We are located in Fairview, Texas, right east of Allen, just north of the Dallas area. The sermon you're about to hear was recorded at one of our worship services, which we'd love to invite you to check out live at 8.30 a.m. for traditional or 11 a.m. for contemporary on Sunday mornings on our Facebook page or the recorded version on YouTube. We'd love for you to check out our social media pages at Creekwood UMC or our website, creekwoodumc.org, for more information about what is happening and how you can grow with us in our mission to share God's love. If you feel inspired, there's also a way to give at the top of the website. Thanks for listening to this sermon, and we hope it inspires you in your journey with God. So the first comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. This is verses 1 through 10. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord, descending from heaven, came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. For fear of him, the guards shook and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has been raised from the dead. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has been raised from the dead. And indeed, he is going ahead of you to Galilee, and there you will see him. This is my message for you. So they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came to him, took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers and go to Galilee. There they will see me. The second passage is taken from Acts 16, reading verses 11 to 15. We set sail from Troas and took a straight course to Samothrace, the following day to Ninopolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city for some days. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate by the river, where we were supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and we spoke to a woman who had gathered there, a certain woman named Lydia, a worshiper of God. She was listening to us. She was from the city of Thyteria and a dealer in purple cloth. The Lord opened her heart to listen eagerly to what was said by Paul. When she and her household were baptized, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay at my home. And she prevailed upon us. Friends, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let us say, thanks be to God. So in the United Methodist Church, one of the things we encourage is that you don't have to check your brain at the door 
uh, when you walk in, which means asking questions, which means that sometimes when we read one scripture story or one scripture passage, it seems like it's not saying maybe the same thing as another scripture passage and a scripture story. So for one example, we have this story where uh, these women, Mary and uh, uh, Joanna and Mary, uh, are going to the tomb they presume Jesus to be in. They're going to prepare his body uh, for complete burial. And as they uh, get there, they find this an empty tomb. And as they're exiting to go uh, tell people about this, Jesus himself meets these women. And what does he tell them to do? Go tell the men about what you've just seen. Go teach the men everything about what you've just seen. You know, have authority in this situation to do that. Um, and where that can get a little confusing is if you go later into 1 Corinthians 15 or 1 Timothy chapter 2, there are a few passages in the New Testament, uh, presumably written by Paul, that say that a woman should not speak in church or that a woman should know her place in the household or various things. And so we understand there could be some confusion as your, whatever your devotional happens to say that day, or if you're reading in narrative form um, and, you, and you get these two contrasting elements of what the Bible said. So here's scenario one. Scenario one is that 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Timothy chapter 2, those passages are the absolute truth and not some contextual reference or something that was added later by another editor about the women's place in ministry and God's uh, desire for creation. And the fact that we have uh, women who preach here means that we're all going to be punished somehow. That's scenario one. Uh, scenario two is that we fully trust the account of the resurrection, and that women went and told men, in fact, weren't just told men, but were told by Jesus to tell men to believe that Jesus had risen and to come and see, and that we would not know uh, the story of the resurrection if it were not for women who claim their authority to teach these men in this, in this certain situation. And so let's just for a moment go down the rabbit trail of scenario two. Uh, that women are allowed to speak to men with some kind of authority. Because there are churches that still teach. I know somebody who uh, goes to a church and she teaches Sunday school, but she is not allowed to teach boys past the age of five because as a 41-year-old woman, she doesn't have the spiritual maturity of a six-year-old or five-year-old male uh, does according to her chromosome level. So um, let's go down scenario two for a little while. If we believe that the women were given authority by Jesus to tell the disciples about the resurrection, we can also then believe that John 4, 39 is true. When the woman at the well who meets Jesus at noon in the heat of the day, John 4, 39 says that she goes back to Samaria, her village, and many people, the village, believed because of her testimony about who Jesus was. So if we believe scenario two is true, then we can also believe that John 4, is true. We can go back, or then we can go forward into the future to Acts 16, which Wendy McConney read for us, of Lydia, who um, hears the gospel from Paul and ends up having the authority to baptize her entire household and, tradition says, is one of the progenitors, the beginners of the Philippian church, which would go on to be one of Paul's favorite church. So if we believe scenario two, then Acts 16 makes sense as well. And then Romans 16 would also make sense because Romans 16 is when Paul is thanking his cohort, his, his ministry cohorts, his ministry partners around the Mediterranean. And, and amongst the many women who are listed are Priscilla, who would be one of the early martyrs of the church, Junia, who some people actually think was a female apostle, and Phoebe, who is mentioned explicitly in Romans 16 as a deacon, one who uh, had authority to serve and to administer others to serve things, uh, to serve out in the world. So if scenario two is correct, we can also believe 
Romans chapter 16, and if we can believe that, then maybe we can go into the Old Testament and we can believe that Queen Esther took her authority in front of King Xerxes and told the truth about who God's people were and stopped a mass murder of all the Jewish people in the book of Esther. And then we've got Deborah back in Judges who commands the male figure of Barak of what the Lord's army should do and judges over Israel fairly and justly. And I suppose we could even go back to Genesis, which says that God created humankind in male and female. God created humankind in God's image. So hopefully we can see that maybe scenario two is starting to sound a little bit more biblically, biblical accurate, historically accurate as to what the role of these game changers really was. These women who saw the truth of the empty tomb and took their authority to go and claim that uh, with the disciples. And, and this is actually a bigger deal than we might give it credit for now. Uh, you regularly get to see two women preach here in, at Creekwood. Hopefully that's a wonderful example. In fact, at Easter, uh, there was a little girl who, who's in elementary school now and um, went home from Easter and, and told her mom, or asked her mom, can I be like the curly-haired pastor who gives special people hugs and teaches people about God? Right? Carrie Lynn here. And, and she's like, what better could there be to, to give kids hugs and tell people about Jesus? And, and her mom was like, nothing. You go for it, right? So we get to see that, but it's a bigger deal because it's not always been the case. Um, and, and so William Lane Craig, who, uh, if you've read The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, is interviewed a couple times in lots of Lee Strobel's books. Uh, William Lane Craig is a, is a biblical apologist. He's a professor. He's got multiple doctors, doctorate degrees. Uh, and he talks about when you're evaluating historical sources, um, there's uh, multiple different criteria that you look at, but one of those is the criterion of embarrassment. And that means that if, if you read something that is embarrassing to the people who are writing it, then there's a good chance it is true. So, for example, like the entirety of the Old Testament, right? 75% of the Old Testament is incredibly unflattering to the Israelites. And when you look at the prophets, uh, whether it be, you know, look at the story of Jonah, for example, of the prophet who's called to go share God's good love and to save the Ninevites. And what's his reaction? No. And he runs the other way, and it's a comedy of errors. Look at Jacob. They're, they're, the people of Jacob is what Israel what it was known as. Even Israel is what Jacob's name has changed to be. And Jacob lies to his brother, lies to his dad, and when he's coming back to face his brother, he sends his entire family ahead of him just so they could get killed, and he wouldn't. So he's a really fantastic example to base a religion off of. Um, when we look at other religions, we see that their prophets tend to be perfect. Their, everything tends to be perfect. But when we look at the Old Testament, we see that most of it is embarrassing, and, and that's for good reason. It's number one, is it lifts up God's authority over any human person or any human system. And number two, it's true. And so when we look at the criterion of embarrassment in relationship to uh, the empty tomb and the women who found that, uh, this would have been completely embarrassing for the male disciples to go and admit that they were not the first ones to find that. In fact, other historical sources, they believe that people kind of inserted their name as the hero in the story, but that didn't happen here. And, and what Paul does in Romans 15, or not Romans 15, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Timothy chapter 2, what he does is, is he, or what he doesn't do is make a theological claim about a woman's place in the world or about a woman's place in God's creation. What he does inadvertently do is teach us about how that culture viewed women. 
Um, and so what, he's, what he does is he uses the household code of Rome to teach about the lordship of Christ. So he says, he's not making a theological statement about Jesus or women. He's making a metaphor of this is the way you understand the roles to be, and the way you understand these roles is how your relationship with Jesus should be. So Jesus should be the absolute master lord of your life. You should do anything Jesus says, and the guy can rise from the dead, so he deserves the credit, right? So that's the point he's trying to make. But what he does is he shows us how that culture viewed women, that they were second class, they didn't have a lot of authority. They didn't have a lot of say. They were not supposed to be in command. They weren't supposed to—in fact, even in Jewish circles, not even just in, in Roman circles, but in Jewish courts, a woman's testimony held no weight. They couldn't be one of those two witnesses. And so here we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then if you want to go to the non-canonical sources, you've still got women who are telling you the very firsthand accounts of the core tenet— of our faith, that Jesus rose from the dead, the core belief of why we are Christian, the core belief of why we have hope, the core belief of why the disciples were willing to go and die for their faith amongst extreme persecution, is all predicated on the fact that these women's testimony was to be believed. This is no small deal in that culture, and, and it has led to um, this—it it led to this game being changed— this game being changed of who is allowed, who is given the authority to go and to teach people the love of God, teach people the holiness of God. And I have to say, I don't think God's plan was for only 49% of the population to have that joy and privilege. And I think we're ineffective, and I think we're selling ourselves short, we're doing ourselves a disservice if we only allow 49% of the population to do that. What I think we're saying, and let me just give you one example. If y'all know who Beth Moore is, kind of raise your hand if you know who Beth Moore is. Most people, especially if you are a woman, have done a Bible study led by Beth Moore because she's classically been pigeonholed in that, you know, female discipleship standpoint. But Beth Moore has been a leading teacher in the Southern Baptist Church forever um, and very good at it. And uh, over the last probably six years or so, she became a little bit more vocal about her specific denomination's treatment of women, specifically around sexual harassment and um, other things going on in multiple denominations, unfortunately, but especially in her denomination. And, um, and she got hammered, just absolutely hammered. And, and, and on social media one time, another prominent uh, authority in her denomination, when she had voiced concern over the way her denomination was handling it, he quoted a scripture passage, and he just wrote, go home. Because there's a passage in Scripture that says, if a woman has a question or if a woman wants to speak, she must first go to her husband at home and ask the question. Do you know who Beth, what Beth Moore's husband does for a living? He's a plumber. And I'm not saying plumbers can't be biblically astute or spiritually mature. They certainly can be. And if you're a plumber and you want to teach Sunday school, by all means, let's go for it. But in our congregation, if you need emergency medicine help or how to do a tracheotomy on the side of the road, you go to Josh Smith, right? He's an EMT. If you need spiritual guidance and biblical accuracy, you go to Pastor Katrina. She's got those skills. She's got those gifts, right? It's, it's not about what chromosomes you have. It's about what you've been trained for, what you've been gifted by the Holy Spirit to do. And when we say go home— what we're really saying is, well, I liked it better before. And before the crucifixion, before the resurrection, before we took Jesus' words utterly seriously, the religious establishment allowed people to share about the love of God. Um, let's start first off that you had to be a Levite. So you had to be born into the right family of the right ethnicity 
to, in order to guide people to God. And then it became a little more open. The Sadducees were not priests. They were like a religious elite club, but you had to inherit from your family value. And most of the time it was elite people. So you didn't only have to be male and inherit it from the right family, but you also had to be rich. So we're not just saying women can't do it, but we're also saying poor people can't do it. You have to say you have to be the right part of the right class in order to share the love of God. And the Pharisees were a little more liberal than that. Pharisees were more of a meritocracy that if you were smart enough, if you were good enough, you could be part of the religious establishment and you could teach people about God. But then we're also saying, well, we only want the brightest and the smartest people. We're going to cut all the other people that don't really have the intellectual ability to, to understand their relationship with God. And I don't know if you hear scenario two or scenario one playing out that way, but we're, we're starting to limit the impact of who has the authority to go teach about God. And we're also starting to go against Matthew 28 that says, all of you should really go out and teach and baptize in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, so that all the world may know to the ends of the earth, it says. And in the Pentecost moment in Acts 2, when Peter starts speaking all of these different languages to expand the gospel as far as language can hear, as far as the world might go, so that everyone can have the opportunity to share the good news that we've experienced through Jesus Christ to limit it to 49% of the population and then farther down based upon class and everything else, we are limiting the good news of Jesus if we're saying that that matters. If we're saying scenario one is the absolute truth and that's what we're going to base our gospel off of and instead of scenario two, where the entirety of our faith is based upon the crux that we believe women I've told y'all before that I would not be in this position. I would not be in ministry, I don't believe, if it weren't for Reverend Anna Hoseman Butler and Reverend Christy Rossett, who are at First United Methodist Church Allen, and pulled me aside and said, you need to be a preacher when you grow up. I recognize there are some people who think that that was a bad thing that they, they started down, um, but I think it's pretty good, and I'm really excited to be in the position that I am in, and I found a lot of joy in there, but uh, Pastor Anna and Pastor Christy wouldn't have been there if it weren't for early on with Rele Reverend Ellen Eastwanger and Reverend Anna Howard Shaw, who, uh, Reverend Eastwanger was the first uh, woman ordained in the Evangelical United Brethren, and Reverend Shaw was the first woman ordained in the Methodist Protestant Church, which were two of the groups that ended up becoming the United Methodist Church in 1968 uh, when they all joined together, and they would not have been there if it weren't for Amy Simple McPherson, who lit the West Coast on fire in Pentecostalism. She used to drive in on Harleys um, and, and preach. I don't know if they had Harleys, but a motorcycle uh, back then. She would preach from airplanes. She would do all those kind of things, and she introduced America, uh, at least on the West Coast, to the Holy Spirit being involved in worship and allowed freedom uh, to be in worship. She was one of the first ones to do that. And even before Amy Simple McPherson was Sojourner Truth and Jarena Lee, who were prominent preachers within the African Methodist Episcopal Church, who spoke out um, not only women's rights, but also um, for race, uh, racial justice as well. And then even before them, going back into the Middle Ages, we've got St. Teresa of Avila, who uh, wrote this book called The Dark Night of the Soul. And she introduces people to the ecstatic personal relationship with God during a time in which the religious establishment said, you have to go through us first. And you can almost say that St. Teresa laid the work for Martin Luther to say that we can have a personal relationship with God through Christ. Before St. Teresa was Lydia, who started an entire church. And before Lydia, there was Mary and Joanna and Mary, who set the stage for us to 
believe, to know that whether you are a man, whether you are a woman, whether you are an adult, whether you are a kid, whether you are poor, whether you're rich, whoever you are, you have the authority to tell people about Jesus. You have the authority to show people about Jesus. You are a communicator. You are a teacher for whoever might come in your path. And that has been laid out, and I'm so blessed that our church has taken that seriously, where we have a variety of different people in teaching positions. We have a variety of different people in clergy positions. We have a variety of people who all bring different giftedness. And I'm, and I'm really honored to show you, uh, to introduce you to two people who our staff parish relations team, um, probably about, you know, five months ago, I think it was, maybe six months ago, um, actually approved these two women um, to start seeking um, certified candidacy for ministry, which is the first step in ordination in the United Methodist Church. And so let's meet these two. Hey y'all. Hey y'all. My name is Tori Cantu and I am the Assistant Youth Minister at First Allen, right down the road from you. And this is a little bit of my journey. So... Hi, my name is Kenna. I am a religion major in my third year at McMurray University in Abilene. I'm also currently preaching uh, regularly at Blackwell United Methodist. So, I didn't really grow up in the church. It, my journey actually started back when I was in college, back in 2011. I went to a really conservative Mennonite college and one of the requirements was religion courses, which at the time I classified myself as an atheist and I really didn't believe. Uh, I grew up in the church, but I didn't really have a calling to ministry until high school. I, my junior year, I started becoming interested in the degree of theology, religion, that kind of a thing. I was interested in the language, the history, uh, all the psychology that goes into a ministry degree. And having to study and get to develop a personal relationship with Jesus in January that same year, I accepted Christ in my heart. That summer, I went on and I went to an internship called Project Transformation, if some of y'all may knew it. Um, and I was based in Sherman Denison and I got to work with the kids and I realized that I had a real big heart for the marginalized and the ones that really didn't feel welcome in a church, like the unlovable almost. I felt that way because when I came out and I became a Christian, I was cast out of the churches up in Kansas because I could not be both LGBT and Christian. Um, fast forward, those two summers changed my life and they've always put a call on my heart for ministry uh, nine years. It took nine years for me to finally just grab a hold of it and run. I didn't recognize that it was truly God's calling me into ministry until I started here. I started at McMurray uh, three years ago, and I was pretty confident that I was going to work in a church, uh, but God pretty much decided that was not the case. I randomly decided to take a hospital ministry class that takes place at uh, the local hospital in Abilene, and it allowed me to actually work with patients and act as a chaplain for a little bit, and I just fell in love with Thanks for listening. We would love if you could leave us a review on whatever platform you are listening today, and let us know how we are doing. Be sure to check out our social media pages at Creekwood UMC and our website, creekwoodumc.org, for more ways to get involved at Creekwood United Methodist Church in person, online, or both. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week.